You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. to introduce uh, Gene Husky, who's uh, one of my favorite people in the world, so it's very nice to have him here in Madison with us. He's the uh, William R. Kennan Jr. Professor of Political Science at Stetson, where he's been since 1989. He got his PhD at the London School of Economics. And unlike so many of us, he's had many different um, uh, lives in academia. Because I first uh, got to know his work because he wrote what is, I think, the standard uh, text on um, uh, lawyers, advocati, in uh, the Soviet Union, and a bunch of articles that went along with that. And then he moved on to do stuff about state building, and then he, he left the Russian space, which well, was very sad for us. I didn't leave it, but. Yeah, you moved, to, you, you expanded. I expanded, <laughs> expanded yeah. And has been doing a lot of work on Kyrgyzstan, and has this very intriguing um, memoir coming out uh, soon about his life and uh, what he's discovered in Kyrgyzstan. But today I think you're going to venture even further and talk about uh, leadership transitions in multiple countries um, with Kyrgyzstan kind of being the, the one that actually is doing has the most democracy. Is that fair to say? I think it is. Yeah. Whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it may be a, a small spectrum, but it's, <laughs> it's further over. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, we're glad to have you. Well, thanks so much, Kathy. That's a wonderful introduction. And um, I must say, the older I get, having worked in several fields, I'm feeling more and more dilettantish. <laughs> and when I started, of course, there were fairly small literatures yeah. in each of those fields. And now <laughs> the literatures have gotten huge. And so trying to keep up oh, yes. in the field is, is more and more difficult. So, um, But let me thank you all for uh, inviting me here, for bringing me to Madison, which is one of my favorite places in the summer. Uh, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been here yet in the winter. This is my third trip in the summer, and I have to come back one of these days to experience the Wisconsin winter. Um, thanks to Kelly and Jacob for uh, organizing things. And I don't know, Jacob, if I ought to say, and this is on a podcast, is that right? It's going to be on a podcast, that if anyone wants to get the PowerPoint uh, as they're listening along and want to email me for the PowerPoint, they could certainly do that. Uh, the email is ehusky at stetson.edu. It's E-H-U-S-K-E-Y at stetson.edu, S-T-E-T-S-O-N dot E-D-U. Okay, well, let me um, begin with sort of two comments that are related to my biography, my own biography in the field. First, um, as Kathy knows, I started my academic career as a Sovietologist, which meant that I worked in a largely Moscow-centered and Russian-language-centered field. I was in my late 30s, in fact, when I pivoted to Central Asian studies, though I didn't go there completely, but I've spent about half or a little bit more of my time in Central Asian studies over the last 30 years or so. Um, I have two individuals, I think, to thank for this pivot. The first was uh, a young scholar from Kyrgyzia, as it was called then, named Bolodjikitekov, who I met at Moscow State University when I was doing graduate work there in 1979-80 on Soviet advocatura, on the Soviet lawyers. Um, he spent hours regaling me with stories of life in his native Kyrgyzia. 
So uh, actually, I got to know a little bit about Central Asia in Moscow, which is kind of an unlikely start to Central Asian studies. A decade later, Professor Jerry Huff of Duke, at the time, I think Kathy, well, may admit, was the country's leading Sovietologist, uh, certainly the most controversial and the most creative Sovietologist, he invited me to join a group of 15 scholars to study the republics of the Soviet Union as the USSR was unraveling. And when he called me up at the end of the 1980s, he, he didn't have a specialist for four of the southern republics. Muslim-majority republics, Tajikistan, uh, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, and Kyrgyzia. And because I knew where Kyrgyzia was on the map, uh, I was qualified to tackle that. So I, I started literally to study Kyrgyzia, Kyrgyzstan now, in 1989, I guess it was, with only these conversations in a dormitory in, at Moscow State University uh, behind me. Now, when I began doing field research in Central Asia in 1992, I had little need for the Kyrgyz language because the politicians and social activists that I was interviewing, uh, with few exceptions, were far more comfortable talking about politics in Russian than in Kyrgyz. Indeed, most of the Kyrgyz I talked to who were brought up in the capital city of Bishkek, which was a largely Russian, certainly Russified city in the Soviet period, couldn't speak Kyrgyz, never mind about politics. They really couldn't even hold a conversation in Kyrgyz. Now, that's changed fundamentally over the last quarter century, and I have to admit that there have been moments over the last decade when my beginner's knowledge of Kyrgyz has been a real barrier to my research. The most notable occasion was in April of 2009 at a Kurultai, a popular assembly, in the village of Arashan in northern Kyrgyzstan, where opposition-oriented activists had gathered in the hundreds to nominate uh, Almazbek Atambayev as the presidential candidate to stand against the incumbent, Kurmanbek Bakiev. With the exception of two ethnic Russian politicians from Bishkek, all of the speakers delivered their remarks in Kyrgyz. And so all I captured were the highlights translated by a colleague from a local NGO. Even more frustrating was an intimate lunch that followed uh, in a small ceremonial yurt in a nearby village. Rosa Atumbayeva, leading um, opposition politician, later to become president of the country, invited me to join her in the country's top um, opposition leaders, including the presidential nominee, Atumbayev, in this yurt. Literally, there were about eight of us in the yurt. After a few minutes of pleasantries in Russian, the group switched to Kyrgyz, which deprived me of their insights, and I could see that their debates were quite heated about how they should take on the incumbent president. So uh, this is a very long way of saluting you, of congratulating you for having the wisdom uh, to come to a place like this and study Central Asian languages, which is, I think, an absolutely necessary qualification for doing research uh, in the field these days. So I'm, I'm very jealous of the chance you have here at Madison to do intensive language study. Um, let me admit that my longevity in the field has also colored my perspective on the subject of today's lecture, Leadership Transitions in Central Asia. As a graduate student, and, and Kathy may be too young to remember this, but uh, <laughs> the literature that I read on Soviet leadership transitions framed those episodes as succession crises. 
and for good reason, because the first two transitions, which followed the incapacity of Lenin and the death of Stalin, brought lengthy and destabilizing struggles for power. And yet the final four Soviet leadership transitions, beginning with Khrushchev's ouster in 1964 um, and ending with Chernyenka's death in 85, occurred with minimal disruption to the political and social order. This is because by the 1960s, the USSR had developed what Harry Rigby called a self-stabilizing oligarchy, where a small selectorate at the top of a single disciplined party assured the rapid and smooth transfer of power. Now, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were many reasons to fear that such orderly leadership transitions would not be repeated in the six newly independent states of Central Asia. And I'm not sure if this is uh, appropriate, but I'm expanding Central Asia a little bit for this talk. Uh, I think it's uh, appropriate to include Azerbaijan, uh, Turkic, uh, Muslim majority, uh, energy dependent state right across the Caspian Sea, in most respects really is more similar to its Central Asian neighbors than to its Caucasian neighbors, I think. Perhaps some people will disagree who know the region uh, better than me. But anyway, we're going to be including Azerbaijan uh, in Central Asia today. Now, instead of a mature Soviet uh, political order governed by settled institutional arrangements and governance, you had fledgling states whose um, elites were struggling to gain political advantage by redefining their country's basic political rules. So you've got an institutionalized system like the Soviet Union, and then all of a sudden you've got this new set of countries where politicians are struggling to define the new rules in ways that are going to clearly advantage them. Um, instead of a single unifying, if somewhat moribund, ideology, you had a battle over identities and historical memory that revived long-suppressed regional, ethnic kinship and religious loyalties. Instead of the threat of simply losing a bureaucratic position um, and attendant privileges, incumbents in the post-communist period also faced the loss of massive wealth acquired through illicit means. And instead of a self-stabilizing oligarchy, uh, the regimes in the region fairly quickly developed into personalist dictatorships, or in the case of Kyrgyzstan, a very messy democracy, or whatever we want to call it. <laughs> now, for all these reasons, one might have expected a repeat of the early Soviet succession crises across the region. And certainly journalists and local observers have speculated incessantly about potentially disruptive transitions that would be triggered by the deaths of aging strongmen. Aliyev in Azerbaijan, uh, the Turkmenbashi Niyazov in Turkmenistan, Karimov in Uzbekistan, or now, who knows when, in the next few months or years, Nazarbayev in Kazakhstan. And yet, as you'll see in the slide that hopefully will come up here, um, transfers of power from one leader to another have been remarkably infrequent and peaceful throughout most of Central Asia. I mean, this is really an extraordinary record, if you think about it, because we've had now 27 years, 26, 27 years of independence, 
And I fudge a little bit here, and, and most of you understand why maybe I fudged it and not taken it back to 91, but to 94, because as I'll say in a minute, there were some very messy things that happened as the Soviet Union collapsed, especially in Tajikistan and in Azerbaijan. But if we take it from 1994, there are two countries out of the six that have had no leadership transitions at all. Uh, the other, the three autocratic regimes have only had one. And of course, uh, my favorite country, Kyrgyzstan, has had four. 2005, 2010, 2011, 2017. Now, you know, this is kind of interesting in its own right, and my book in part deals with this issue of why is Kyrgyzstan distinctive. I'm going to say something about this later on, but remarkably, you have four living ex-presidents in Kyrgyzstan. You have no living ex-presidents anywhere else. <laughs> now, never mind that two of those living ex-presidents don't live in Kyrgyzstan. They're in exile in Russia <laughs> or in Belarus. Um, this is a somewhat unusual uh, tenure here of a president. President Atumbayeva, the woman I mentioned, the opposition leader, uh, was president only for about a year and a half. And in fact, her presidency was a little anomalous because she wasn't elected to the presidency. After the revolution of 2010, the interim government appointed her as the leader, acting president, and then by referendum at the end of June 2010, she was confirmed as the president. So I'm not sure we want to count that as a, as a real election because it really is more uh, a referendum, but I still think you see something uh, very extraordinary here in terms of stability. Um, the question I, I want to grapple with, or the questions, is why is this? Why has there been so little turnover? And why is Kyrgyzstan the sole democracy in the region, the exception to the rule? To use Ed Schott's language, what options have Central Asian leaders selected from the authoritarian toolkit in order to minimize the political challenges faced by periodic um, elections and by their eventual death. Finally, is there any reason to believe that subsequent leadership transitions in autocratic regimes in the region, in the first instance, as we said, in Kazakhstan, will depart from the relatively benign pattern established in the first quarter century of post-communist rule in Central Asia? Now, again, to go back to the period from 91 to 94, I have to recognize that at the breakup of the Soviet Union, two countries, Azerbaijan and uh, Tajikistan, did experience destabilizing leadership transitions. As a result of the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict in Azerbaijan and the civil war in Tajikistan, elected presidents were forced out of office well before the end of their terms, in fact, very shortly after they came into office. Um, by world standards, though, if we think about only having three handovers of power in the region's five autocratic regimes, and I'm using autocratic and authoritarianism similarly today, um, it's, it's really an impressive but not altogether extraordinary record of leadership stability. I don't know how many of you who are doing political science have read the work of Barbara Geddes and some of her students in recent years, Erica France is one of those that's been working where they, I think, is now at Michigan State. But um, their work has pointed out, and here I'm quoting from it, 
From 1946 to 1989, the average duration of authoritarian regimes was 12 years. Since the end of the Cold War, this number has almost doubled to an average of 20 years. Today, and they were writing two or three years ago, the typical dictatorship has been in power for 25 years. So uh, I think it, it is a little unusual, but it's not that unusual. Now, on a, I don't know if I need to, to go into this kind of terminological uh, distinction here. It's not a political science discussion, but Gettys and her students talk about autocratic spells as opposed to autocratic regimes, as opposed to autocratic leaders. So you could have an autocratic spell in Turkmenistan, for example. You've had an autocratic spell that's lasted in the post-communist period for 26 years. But in theory, you could have an autocratic spell where part of that time the country was under a military dictatorship, partly it would be under a party dictatorship, one-party rule, and partly a personalist dictatorship. Okay. Um, and in, in, in the same way, you could have, I don't know, uh, Putin and Nazarbayev as leaders who governed in a somewhat more open and competitive environment for a while, and then after a few years consolidated their power. So we want to try to keep clear the distinctions between autocratic spells, autocratic regimes, which has to do with the rules of the political game, not making leaders accountable, and uh, autocratic leaders and their uh, transitions. Unfortunately, Geddes and her colleagues find that personalist dictatorships of the sort that we have in Central Asia are the most durable forms of authoritarian rule. So why have leadership transitions been so infrequent thus far in Central Asia? I'd argue that it has to do first and foremost with the high cost of losing office for authoritarian leaders. Once a leader decides to use his or her office, public office, her substantial private gain, and to subject opponents to persecution, imprisonment, exile, or death, stepping down from power exposes a former authoritarian leader to the potential loss of wealth, freedom, ability to stay in their home country, and perhaps even life itself. Now, many of these consequences follow not just from the autocrat's family, but also for an extensive circle of clients who have benefited from the patronage of the leader. Um, so it's not just the individual autocrat, but a whole network that's often desperate to keep the individual in power. Those of you who studied Russian politics understand that there was a family, and not just in the narrow sense, uh, with Berezovsky and uh, Dyachinko and others, but a larger circle of people who were intent on keeping that network in power after Yeltsin left office. Alongside this instinct for political and personal self-preservation are several other factors that reinforce Central Asian authoritarianism and discourage rulers from leaving office. Now, in political science, it's, fair, it's pretty unfashionable to rely on cultural explanations. Now, and I understood from the reading that I did about this institute that there are a number of anthropologists here. So um, I apologize, I guess, for <laughs> calling into question that culture uh, might matter. But um, 
I'd argue that where elites perceive populations as unready for democracy, they will be more likely to restrict the public's participation in the political game. Even among the more enlightened members of the Kyrgyz uh, political class, ruling class, attitudes towards ordinary citizens have revealed a deep suspicion of their democratic potential. In February of 1990, the Communist Party leadership in Moscow sent Chinggis Aitmatov, the famous Kyrgyz writer, back to his home republic to try to put down efforts that some local activists were engaged in to start a national front akin to those that you had in the Baltic and other parts of the Soviet Union. And what did Chinggis Aitmatov say to the youth of Kyrgyzstan in 1990? He said, we are not like the Baltic peoples. That's Europe, an advanced society with the achievements of, of uh, democracy behind it. And who's behind us? China, with its almost feudal dictatorship. For his part, President um, Akayev of Kyrgyzstan, the first founding president of Kyrgyzstan, observed in the middle of the 1990s during a speech in Paris that his people were not yet ready for Western forms of democracy, owing to their, and this is classic, historical traditions, way of life, and ethno-psychology. I mean, playing into the kind of worst stereotypes that we all abhor, people falling into these things, but here you have re leaders from the region who, who have these attitudes, it seems to me, about their own people. Now, I, it, clearly this is deeply self-serving, right? It allows them to justify uh, not giving as much power, not being as accountable, um, but still I think there is something behind this. One could also argue that the prevalence of family rule in Central Asia has a cultural underpinning. Do, I don't know if everyone understands what we mean by family rule. It's been talked about a lot in Kyrgyzstan, but in other countries as well, and we're going to have many examples of this over the next couple of minutes, uh, but it's when essentially uh, a leader rules the country uh, not just through formal institutions, but through his own family. Now, not only are families larger in Central Asia, here's where I'm trying to make another cultural argument, not only are families larger than in much of the world, but kinship ties are unusually close. And these factors, combined with the immaturity of legal and market mechanisms, make it more likely that politically successful family members will feel an obligation to integrate their kin into their ruling network. Perhaps the exemplar of this practice is President Imamali Rahman of Tajikistan, many of whose nine children occupy important positions in government and politics. His oldest daughter is the presidential chief of staff. His third daughter is a deputy head of the Foreign Ministry's International Organizations Department. Another daughter is deputy head of Tajikistan's largest commercial bank, Orionbank. And his 30-year-old son, Rustam, is the mayor of Dushanbe. He was a former head of the country's anti-corruption agency, and he's now the presumed successor to his father. And we'll return to this uh, in a minute when we talk about uh, dynastic successions. In at least two respects, Central Asian geography also matters as an explanation of the res for the uh, resilience of autocratic rule. 
First, the greater distance to Berlin, as social scientists put it, the less the sort of the, the greater you have, the, the the further you are from Berlin. Let's put it that way. Uh, the less likely countries are to feel pressure to resist the authoritarian temptation in order to benefit from a relationship with or maybe even membership in the European Union. Whereas the promise of expanded ties to Europe have helped to shape political developments in countries like Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, that's not been the case in Central Asian countries, which have fallen outside of the European penumbra. The inverse of this factor is that proximity to other authoritarian regimes lowers expectations for political accountability and competitiveness. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt in recent years on the role of the West in encouraging post-communist color revolutions, but very little attention has been trained on the ways in which authoritarian regimes seek to prevent the rise of more open and competitive governments in their own neighborhood. Case in point is the demonstration effect of laws against NGOs, which spread from Russia to Central Asia following the color revolutions. Kyrgyzstan in particular has been subject to this kind of pressure from Russia and neighboring authoritarian regimes because it's a democratic outlier. In 1994, Uzbekistan's President Karimov pressured President Akayev to use a referendum rather than competitive elections to obtain his second presidential term, an option that Karimov himself employed a few months later in the early part of 1995. Now, in the event, the independent-minded parliament in Kyrgyzstan didn't go along with that, but Akayev had been under considerable pressure from his neighbor, a neighbor, let me remind you, who would every winter in this period cut off gas supplies in order to make life as miserable as possible in Bishkek and other cities and remind Kyrgyzstan of their dependence on Uzbek natural gas. Now, in 2010, Russian leaders warned Kyrgyzstan that it should not go through with the adoption of a new constitution that contained fairly robust restraints on presidential power, including a single six-year term, which is really quite remarkable. We're going to, well, maybe I'll put it up now and come back. We'll come back. Here's a table that gives you a sense of who's in power now and uh, gives you the age and number of years in office. You see we have two people who've come into power quite recently. In Kyrgyzstan, Soren Bajin Bekov just six months ago, and Mirziyoyev in Uzbekistan less than two years ago. But you see the length of the terms here, uh, they're really quite long, <laughs> and they've gotten bigger. They started out as four or five years, and gradually they've changed the Constitution to expand them. They've also changed the Constitution to, make, uh, to, to have no limits on terms in several cases, actually in three of the cases here. Uh, it doesn't apply to Nazarbayev because he's the Elbasi, he's the father uh, of the nation, leader of the nation. Uh, interesting, you know, I was watching Vremya the other day, actually a couple of months ago, after the election in Russia, and they talked about very insistently Putin as a leader uh, of the nation, and at the moment they used that term, they put behind him Churchill, 
uh, Roosevelt and de Gaulle. <laughs> so uh, this is, again, part of uh, the ethos, if you want, uh, in, in the uh, region. Um, now, Kyrgyzstan had been under pressure not to adopt the 2010 Constitution, but again, against Russian pressure, it was, it was able to resist. But in 2016, revisions to the Kyrgyzstani Constitution borrowed language from Russian legislation designed to, present, to prevent opposition forces from advancing historical narratives that challenged official interpretations of key events in the country's development. Now, in some cases, foreign countries may enable authoritarian regimes in Central Asia and extend the political life of their rulers, even if that's not their primary intent. I have in mind uh, Russian irredentism and what's happened in Ukraine and Crimea over the last few years, it seems to me has almost certainly encouraged Nazarbayev to recognize the importance of his position in Kyrgyzstan at such a moment to retain sovereignty of, of Kazakhstan, uh, Kazakhstan sorry, uh, over the whole country. Um, yeah, difficult perhaps to prove that, but he has very high standing in Russia. He has, I think, sort of moderate ethnic uh, politics, and I think for those reasons he is uh, less keen to leave power. There are other reasons as well. For its part, the United States helped to fund and support the increasingly repressive Kyrgyzstani leader, Kurmanbek Bakiev, and this is back in the period from 2006-07 to 2010 when he was kicked out, because Bakiev's government guaranteed Western countries access to the transit center at Manas Airport, at Bishkek Airport, which the U.S. regarded as essential to the prosecution of the war in Afghanistan. And just this week, there have been reports that the Saudi government is preparing to provide cash to the upcoming election campaign of the Tajik president, Rahman, or his son, if his son is the one who runs, in order to nullify Iranian influence in Tajikistan. So in short, the international environment is critical to understanding leadership transitions and authoritarian durability in a region whose small states are politically and economically vulnerable. Now because authoritarians learn from each other, especially those living in the same neighborhood, there's considerable overlap in the methods employed by incumbents in Central Asia as they seek to postpone leadership transitions and in some cases provide for a successor. And I put together on the next slide uh, a list of these tactics, and there's pretty small print. I don't know, can you see that in the back? No. <laughs> yes. No, yes? Yeah? Okay. Uh, I don't know if I can make it any larger. I'm afraid that we, uh, it's not going to work, but there's a couple of uh, different rubrics I have here. One of them is those who are essentially trying to avoid the problems that elections present the issue of sort of time in politics here. The easiest way to do this is just to be declared president for life. <laughs> and you never have to worry about elections again. Um, it's sort of like Zhirinovsky at one point was supposed to have said, one man, one vote, one time. Well, in 1999 in Turkmenistan, uh, the Turkmen Bashir became president for life. You know, 
they accorded him that. So he never had to stand for office again. You remove term limits. Okay? That's another way uh, to deal with it, as we've seen. You extend electoral terms from four, five, to six, seven years. You use referendums to grant a new term. You change the date of election. I mean, the Kazakhs haven't voted when they're supposed to have voted for the last three cycles, I don't think. Uh, usually they vote early because they catch the opposition off guard. Sort of, in a way, what happened with Yeltsin, uh, sorry, yeah, with Yeltsin handing over to Putin, only three months left to the election. Uh, the other parties couldn't really get their campaign going until the middle of January. Uh, this is another tactic that they use. Now, and certainly all of you who know anything about politics in this region will be familiar with the mechanisms for managing elections, some of which you see listed here. You disqualify opponents. I mean, that's the most important to make sure that you don't have really serious people running against you. Uh, there are various ways to do that. Selective prosecution is a, you know, a favorite one. You certainly saw it in Kyrgyzstan before the last election, where the longstanding opposition leader, Omar Tekebayev, was put into prison for uh, actions he was supposed to have committed six, seven years earlier, uh, and he's in prison to this day. Uh, registration technicalities is a handy one. Eligibility rules in Azerbaijan, there have been cases where people are, you know, for various reasons, ruled ineligible. Kyrgyzstan has a language commission so that uh, if you don't know Kyrgyz language to a sufficiently high level, you will be disqualified by the language commission. But of course, who selects the members to the language commission? It's the president. This is becoming, as I suggested at the very beginning, less of an issue in Kyrgyzstan because uh, the current generation and future generations will grow up and are growing up speaking Kyrgyz. Uh, but it hasn't been the point, uh, the issue to this point. And in fact, it was introduced at the very end of the 1990s to disqualify one person in particular, Felix Kulov, who was uh, an ally of Akayev until he wasn't, and, uh, and then formed his own party with the slogan, throw Akayev out of office. And uh, he didn't speak Kyrgyz. He was brought up in, in Bishkek in a very Russified environment. Um, you're familiar with media control, with the various administrative resources that presidents have at their disposal, and then different kinds of, of vote fraud, carousel voting, where you, uh, well, there's ones where you send people around in vans and have them vote multiple places. <laughs> there are examples of taking a blank ballot and giving it to the individual and having it already filled out and then having that person go to the precinct, get the blank ballot, put in the already marked ballot, and bring the blank ballot back to you. So you just keep that cycle up. Um, and changing vote totals is the crudest, really, of them all. And one that I think is not resorted to very frequently, or as frequently, because so many of these other things are able to determine winners fairly clearly. Um, there are also electoral rules that can be introduced that have threshold requirements and so forth that Kyrgyzstan has done to disqualify parties. All right, let me look for a minute at retention of power by other means. Now, this is where 
you are willing to give up your office. Here you're trying to stay in your office. You're trying to get reelected or, or stay there because you're president for life. This one, you're not worried about that because in the case of castling, which we've seen and some of you, you know, study Russian politics will be familiar with this, where uh, Putin becomes prime minister and Medvedev becomes president. Okay, this is the, the, the castling option. This is actually the option that Saxion was adopting in Armenia a few weeks ago. How many, is anybody familiar with the Armenian case? No? Um, it, it really has probably been three months ago or something. He had changed the constitution and what he had done instead, what Putin did of course was to keep the constitution the same and just switch offices and of course tremendous amount of informal power shifted into his office in the prime minister's office. What happened in Armenia is that they altered the constitution to diminish the power of the president and shift more power to the prime minister so that when Saksian's last term ended, he became the prime minister. Well, that so outraged the Armenians that they took to the streets by the tens of thousands and they ousted him from office. So uh, that's the transferring office option here, where constitutional changes make another office more attractive. There were many people who thought that Almazbek Atambayev, the former Kyrgyz leader, Kyrgyz president, was following that uh, path. He, in 2016, with these constitutional revisions, had shifted power away from the president and towards prime minister and parliament so that he only had a single term, according to the Kyrgyz constitution. When he left office, it wasn't clear if he was going to pursue this option and become prime minister or the Deng Xiaoping option, <laughs> right? Where you don't have a formal position, but you govern behind the scenes as the leader of the country. That's what Atambayev was trying to do. And it backfired. And I'll talk about this, I think, uh, in, a, in a second, um, where you know things have gotten really very, very difficult uh, and very interesting. One of the problems, I think, and does anybody know about the Kyrgyzstani case? Anybody heard about that? No. Um, so Atambayev selected his successor a guy, Jim Bekov, you saw in an earlier table. Jim Bekov had a 3% popularity rating in July, and the election was in October. And Atambayev went all out to get his ally, Jim Bekov, into power, and he managed to do that. And he won with, we're going to see in a second here, with like 54% of the vote. And I think it probably was roughly that, 54% of the vote. So everybody assumed that this was Atambayev's man. And what happened? Within a few weeks, he starts to remove Atambayev's allies in the presidential apparatus. And then, as Kathy well knows, in the really important positions in any government in this part of the world, the procuracy and the criminal investigation unit if it's separate from the procuracy, and the national security agency, and the legal institutions, 
which even in a democratic country like Kyrgyzstan, which has shifted from 2010 more power to the prime minister, the president retained the, the power block, as it's called. And in this part of the world, whether it's Russia or Central Asia, having the ability to bring prosecution against political enemies is an absolutely key power. Now that power is being used by Atambayev's successor against Atambayev's allies. And Atambayev himself, it seems, may be in danger of being thrown into prison. There was a large Chinese loan given to the hydro, the, um, what do you call it, heating plant, big heating plant in the city, and the money was misspent, and in the middle of winter, the heating plant stopped working. And so they've discovered enormous amounts of corruption associated with this Chinese loan, and Atambayev and a number of his prime ministers and others are being held to account for this. Let me show you, not that perhaps you need reminding, of what happens as a result of the retention, the techniques that keep people in office. This is the kind of election results that are produced. And I hope what I've done here is clear, which is just to say here's the first election that started in the early 90s. Some countries have had more elections than others, and as you would expect, Kyrgyzstan is one of those. Um, Turkmenistan, of course, and Uzbekistan have had the fewest, along with Kazakhstan. So in, in Kyrgyzstan, you see some fairly competitive races. There are some exceptions. Here, this is the 1980, uh, sorry, 2007 election, where Bakiev really dominated it and eliminated all of his opponents virtually and it was uh, you know I think fraudulent what we have here is a case where there were two individuals who ran from the south both of whom got essentially the same percentage so uh, Madumarov got 14.8% uh, uh, and um, uh, Tashiev got 14.5% so really there's about 30% accounted for by a real opposition from the South. I can buy it for some more. And here you see Jan Becca just elected, got his opponent, second place, got 33%. These are, this is real competition. And what do we see in the rest of Central Asia? We see 5% or less. And so here you have a complete lack um, of competitiveness. Now, even with the toolkit just described and the other instruments of authoritarian rule such as the threat and use of violence, autocratic leaders always have to be concerned about elite defections that could destabilize or even topple their regime. Now in normal times autocratic leaders are able to use a wide range of measures to ensure the loyalty of their political allies including surrounding themselves with lieutenants who were foreigners or ethnic minorities and therefore could not reasonably aspire to higher office. A number of cases like this in Central Asia, uh, the Turkmenbashi used to surround himself in his presidential guard with Arabs and Russians and others. In Kyrgyzstan there was an ethnic Kazakh, Medet uh, Sadrkulov, who was a kind of Talleyrand figure for both presidents Akayev and Bakiev. And in Kazakhstan, there is a Uyghur politician, um, 
uh, Karim Jamar Masimov, who has served as Nazarbayev's prime minister and chief of staff and is now head of the National Security Agency, though whether or not Masimov is a real political eunuch, as some people sometimes call uh, these figures, uh, is up for grabs. Some people think he might have a real chance. But, but it has been a tactic to select individuals from outlying groups, from minority groups who would not normally be figured to advance. And of course, Central Asian leaders select not just their relatives, but also people from their home districts. You know, we do this in the United States. Jimmy Carter brought lots of people from Georgia to Washington. Uh, President Akayev brought lots of people from his home district of Kemen in the north which led people to claim that he was trying to replace communism with Kemenism. Um, as, as Henry Hale argues, and here I want to give you a little bit, and we only got about 15 minutes left, and I'm a little worried about getting into overly complex uh, political science stuff here, but has anybody heard of Henry Hale's book on patronal presidentialism? Yeah, a couple folks in the room. Um, he understands that there are moments when the usual survival tactics may fail. And when does he say that incumbents are the most vulnerable? In his view, they're vulnerable when there's a loss of popular support. Even though it's an autocratic regime, he says uh, popular support matters at some level. And they're a lame duck. Right? That either they're really ailing, extremely old, or they're running in their last term. Now, of course, we saw from the earlier chart that that doesn't apply to several countries anymore. And he tried to explain why the turnovers happened in Kyrgyzstan in 2005 and 2010 because of the confluence of these two factors. Akayev did say in 2004 he wasn't going to run for office. And he was becoming increasingly unpopular. So I think maybe the explanation works there. But he also sought to use it to explain the 2010 ouster of the Kyrgyzstani president, Bakiev. To my mind, he claimed that he was a lame duck because he has started his second and final term. But he was only a few months into that term. He still had four years to go. He had a son and a brother who could easily have taken over, who were in effect waiting in the wings. He had a constitutional majority in the parliament, meaning more than two-thirds of the parliament. He could have changed the constitution, like we see in other parts of Central Asia, uh, in order to have removed the term limit. So uh, I don't agree with Hale here that this sort of thing works in the, uh, in the Kyrgyz case. Um, so how do we explain the 2010 leadership transition in Kyrgyzstan, and more generally, Kyrgyzstan's position as an outlier, a dramatic outlier on matters of leadership transition. There's certainly some conjunctural factors at work here. In 2010, um, Russia's un Russia had unprecedented open support for opposition forces. Russian media was filled with criticism of the Bakiev government, something that had not happened previously. And it was also a time when there was a rapid rise in fuel, utility, and cell phone bills, which were increases from companies 
that Bakiev's family had taken over recently. So, you know, clearly that's, that's, those are conjunctural factors. Um, but there's an important structural factor that distinguishes Kyrgyzstan from its neighbors, and this is a factor that's at the center of Henry Hale's book, and let me put up this kind of messy uh, picture here and see if we can make some sense of it. Hale argues that unlike in the rest of Central Asia, where presidents sit atop what he calls a single pyramid system of patronage relations, Kyrgyzstani leaders operate within a competing pyramid system. So you see this, this is the autocratic model here. It's not that you don't have some networks, you know, some patron-client relationships that are not sewn into the dominant single pyramid, but they're really kind of inconsequential politically, or at least they're not strong enough to challenge the leader. It's a really different case here, where you have multiple pyramids that are in competition here. So his basic argument, as I see it, as I read it, is that Kyrgyzstan has this kind of model. Now, I'm not sure to what extent this becomes a tautology, but I worry a little bit about this. Uh, but, but I think generally he's right that the autocratic leaders have managed to create this unified uh, system of patrons and clients uh, underneath them. Now, I, I think I'm going to skip the examples I'm going to give you here of how, or uh, was going to give you, how even small patronage networks can create real problems in a, in a more open, competitive environment like Kyrgyzstan, as happened in 2002 with the Oxy events, where a sort of local strongman was able to mobilize a small number of people to try to defend him against prosecution. And the police came in and killed six of them. And that prompted, that was the first time you'd had that kind of loss of life at the hands of state power in Kyrgyzstan. And that prompted a massive blowback, particularly from forces in the south. And uh, there was a real tension, and there still is, uh, between northern and southern forces in Kyrgyzstan. Of course, the potential for anti-regime mobilization based on social divisions exists throughout Central Asia and not just in Kyrgyzstan. And again, I don't know to what extent you're doing language here or language plus culture and you know uh, other factors, but you may well know these things. Uzbekistan is divided politically along regional lines with important regional networks operating in Fergana Valley, Tashkent, Samarkand, and Jizak, and Bukhara. And historically, there have been tendencies for the Tashkent Fergana group to ally against the Samarkand Jizak Bukhara group. Right? It's not always that, but they, there are those kinds of tendencies. So every country has the possibility when there's a moment, of, there's an opening, a moment of weakness for people to begin to make claims based on region of origin, which is the most important social division in, Kyrgyz, in uh, Uzbekistan. Kazakhstan, as you may know, divided by Jews, by, by hordes, by ethnicity, Russians and Kazakhs. 
and even by the length of residence in urban areas. Much as in China, there's a real tension today between the more russified or kind of long-standing you know, denizens of Almaty and Astana and the new migrants who have come in who don't know Russian, perhaps at all, and have somewhat different values and different worldviews. So there's real, real tension there. I mean, you saw it in the violence in Western um, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, Janozin, about a decade ago, where there was a local uh, grouping, a local clan, some people call it, that were really set against what some people call urban elites who were dominating the energy complex in that particular area. Azerbaijani elites are also divided, oftentimes by place of origin. Interestingly, uh, some of the most powerful people in Azerbaijan have come from Nakhichevansk, which is this small area uh, next to Turkey, or from Yerevan, from Armenia. There were uh, uh, Azeris who were brought up in uh, Yerevan. Turkmenistan has tribal divisions, and Tajikistan, of course, has regional networks, which were at the source of the country's lengthy civil war in the 1990s. But in a single pyramid system, autocratic leaders have succeeded in either suppressing or integrating these networks into a complex but unified web of superior-inferior relationships. Yeah, I, there's some stuff. Let me just try to get to uh, some of the scenarios here. for transferring power, and then we'll tackle briefly the Kazakh case. So as I look at it, it seems to me there are several options. One is the dynastic solution, which Aliyev has accomplished already in Azerbaijan. In 2003, as he was dying, just before the presidential election, he tapped his son, Ilham, to run for president. So that was the, the Dauphin with early retirement, to use the, <laughs> the French idea of the eldest son of the king, right? Um, doesn't have to be son in this case, as we'll see. Um, so the other case here is the, the Dauphin takes over at death. There's what I call a Republican solution. That's to say <laughs> it's not a dynastic one. The person isn't related to the leader. But the leader designates that person and then leaves the scene. Or perhaps they designate the person and they take over once the leader dies. What's the problem with this one, though? Is that it's the quintessential lame duck. It encourages defection, as the political scientists like to say, right? Because um, why would they hang around and continue to exhibit loyalty towards the leader if they already know who the successor is going to be. This is, you know, I think somewhat unlikely. And the other one is no succession arrangements. And frankly, that's what you've had in two out of the three cases. This is the case in Azerbaijan. These, this is the case in um, uh, Uzbekistan. And what else do we have? Maybe that's... Uh, can I just ask a quick yeah, question? Yes, sure. Is, is there no role for the actual rules here? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, ask, ask like a real lawyer, yeah. right? <laughs> no. There is, in fact, I have a whole section on that. Oh, we don't okay, have time sorry. for it. Yeah. No, 
there are rules. I mean, what I was going to say, and going back to my kind of Sovietological training, <laughs> is that there used to be uh, not just formal rules, but a lot of informal practices about how things would work. Now, at least one of those has been embraced by contemporary Central Asia. The leader becomes the chair of the funeral commission. Right? So, just like in the Soviet Union. So, when someone dies, the first thing to look for, who's going to lead the funeral? So that, that will give you a hint. But there are rules in the Constitution about, yeah, who's going to take over. And in the case of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, it is the, the chair of the Senate. But what happened in Uzbekistan? The parliament decided, oh no, we're not going to have the chair of the Senate, we're going to give it to the prime minister, who was the more powerful figure. In Turkmenistan, which is the case I was forgetting here, the other case with no succession in 2006, when the Turkmen Bashi just died, right, um, the chair of the Senate was supposed to take over as a caretaker, and then they were supposed to have an election, they arrested the, the chair of the Senate. Okay, and so yes, there are to answer. There are formal rules, but they've not been respected. I mean, Kyrgyzstan, to be fair, is is the only country that has respected uh, these formal rules. Now, uh, again, there's a lot more that I could talk about, but what I, I want you to do in the last couple of minutes is to have us think about what may be likely to happen in Kazakhstan, where if you remember back to the early table. There were two electoral cycles that are coming up, 2020, two years, Tajikistan and Kazakhstan. Tajikistan doesn't look like it's going to have a disruptive leadership transition because either Rahman will stay in power or he'll pass it off to his son and he seems to be in control. But Kazakhstan is a very different story because Nursultan uh, Nazarbayev is 77 years old. There are rumors about ill health. He himself has recognized and talked about the succession, interestingly. He hasn't designated a successor, but he has talked about it, and he's even making some early moves like changing the Constitution. There is a discussion now on shifting power away from the president and towards the parliament and prime minister. Now, what I'm going to leave you with, and hopefully this will generate discussion, is a bombshell interview that the chair of the Senate, the designee to take over formally, gave to BBC Hard Talk a few days ago. The succession time comes. Uh, first of all, I, would, uh, I should mention that President Kazakhstan, uh, President Nazarbayev was elected to 2020. Whether he will be reelected once again, it's up to him. He'll be, if my mathematics is correct, he'll be 80 by then. Yes. <laughs> now the Constitution In says... Malaysia, Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed, again, <laughs> chief of the government. At 92. At 92. That's a very interesting comment because I noticed the Constitution says that because he's the founder of the nation, he can run as many times as he but wants. But speaking frankly... Uh, uh, I don't believe that uh, President Nazarbayev uh, will go uh, to the presidential election in 2020. Don't you? I don't believe because uh, he's a very wise man. He's absolutely reasonable. And I think that uh, in 2020, uh, we shall have uh, uh, 
presidential elections uh, with other candidates except President Well, you are the de facto number two in this country. I've never heard you or any other official say it quite as clearly as that before. So does that suggest to me that It's my personal opinion, but uh, I think that in 2020, of course it's up to President Nazarbayev whether he will go for the presidential election. But uh, I need to say openly that I don't believe that uh, he will he, he will go. So as his de facto number two right now, and one of the most experienced politicians in Kazakhstan, are you throwing your hat into the ring? Will you be a candidate in 2020? Uh, oh no, I wouldn't say so, because it's, it, it depends. Uh, it depends. But what I want to say that uh, even if President Nazarbayev not become the president of this country, he'll be exercising, exercising tremendous influence uh, uh, over the politics either external politics or internal politics. But uh, still we have time uh, and uh, it's very much important that uh, Kazakhstan uh, will be as stable as it is now. Okay, what do we make of that? Okay, so this is like a quiz here. Given the options that I set out, which option do you think seems the most likely to happen according to Takayev? Deng Xiaoping option? Yeah. I, I think that's what he's suggesting here, a Deng Xiaoping uh, option. And in Kazakhstan, it's more likely because there are some formal constitutional protections for the founding president. And he was recently also named the chair of the Security Council for life. <laughs> so even if a new person comes in as president, and again, it seems like they are seriously discussing, discussing introducing a kind of semi-presidential system or maybe even a parliamentary system in, in Kazakhstan that he could rule behind the scenes for months, years, who knows. Uh, there, there is the possibility, I think it's an outside possibility, that his daughter, Dariga, will become president. She has a responsible position. She has had a number of responsible political positions over the years. Uh, now she is a member of parliament and the chair of the Committee on International Affairs and Security. Um, you know, again, most all of the countries in the region, including Kyrgyzstan, in earlier iterations of its government, have had possible members of the family lined up uh, to be successors. But Kazakhstan is, is a really interesting and important case because it's the economic powerhouse of Central Asia. It's also a, a country that has perhaps a single pyramid system, but it's the most complex, the most difficult to keep together, to hold together, very doubtful that someone besides Nazarbayev would be able to do that without introducing a level of violence that we haven't seen in Kazakhstan in the post-communist era. So, you know, I think most of us in the West, whether we're scholars or journalists, are looking at leadership transitions as openings for political change. And I think if we're looking for that, Kazakhstan over the next couple of years is the most likely case to provide it.
But um, I, I'm interested in hearing your reaction to this and, and your questions. Thanks. Thank you.